0: Howdy, welcome to another week of Canon Calls. This week I had the opportunity to speak with Adam Degree. I recently found an article of his in the Imaginative Conservative, which can be found in the show notes, and his article was about Fyodor Dostoevsky's book Demons. Of all of Dostoevsky's works that you will see and find in outlets, you it's very rare that you would see Demons. So I thought I would jump on the opportunity to talk with him about the cultural context in Russia that it was written and sort of how their cultural chaos and turmoil overlaps with our own and sort of what and sort of how reading Dostoevsky edifies us in our faith and also in ways that we can sort of pop the hood on our own culture and see what's happening. So I highly recommend the article that you can find in the show notes. Additionally, this is one of my favorite things to do is to talk about Literature and how it applies, and the Christian life and Christian wisdom in it. And so, if you haven't checked out Canon Classics, this is precisely why this brand was built, so you could get your hands on the classics, understand the cultural context that it was written, who the author is, and what it is that they're trying to relate to you. What do they find beautiful and important enough to argue for in their book in fiction? So head to canonpress.com. We have all kinds of guides for things like the Iliad, the Aeneid, the Odyssey, War and Peace, another fellow Russian, and more. So head to canonpress.com for that. Without further ado, meet Adam Degree. All right. Now, welcoming on a special guest, Adam Degree. Adam, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I found uh, your article, uh, Dostoevsky's Demons is a novel for our time. And I mentioned to you that I've been sort of waiting and sort of waiting in anticipation for somebody that I can talk to about Dostoevsky. I love Dostoevsky. And he's one of the Russians. So I fe- I feel like most folks when they see Russian literature, they're like, man, do I have the next six months free to read, you know, that giant book? And so I thought, how, you know, what conversation can I have to sort of like push people into Dostoevsky? So I greatly appreciate you coming on and giving me the opportunity to sort of guilt our audience into Dostoevsky. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Well
1: my best to inspire some people to take a crack at it. It's definitely well worth it.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into Fedor? Where are you, where you're studying, et cetera?
1: Sure. So I live in Prague in Czech Republic, and I was born here, but I was raised in California and moved back here with my wife after finishing university. I got a philosophy degree from UC Santa Barbara, and we came out here thinking we'd be here for a year or two. And we just fell in love with it. So this is our fifth year. And uh, sometime during the first year of our marriage, I was frantically trying to understand the world of politics and economics because my wife studied political science and she was a very committed progressive and was organizing different protests and you know, had very strong opinions on lots of things. And I was a sort of, let's say, unreflective conservative. I grew up in a big family and I was really interested in these abstract philosophical questions. And I had, of course, political opinions, but they weren't founded on all that much. And so we had all these fiery debates and that led me to start researching and I stumbled across the Austrian School of Economics, which has a very philosophical approach to social problems. And so I was reading these long 900 page, you know, Human Action by Ludwig von Mises and these big texts. And I kind of got to the point where I I couldn't read anymore. I really needed the help of a professor, this stuff. And so there's a small school in Prague that offered a program in philosophy, politics, and economics. And they had track in Austrian economics, which is rare, because if any of you know about it, either your listeners, it's probably uh, an exception to the rule. It's really an obscure corner of that field. And uh, so we both signed up. So we got a master's in Philosophy, politics, and economics. And um, meanwhile, I was working as a writer and a teacher, and uh, I teach history for mostly homeschoolers and charter schoolers, um, all online. So I'm on the other side of the world, and my students are primarily in America. And it's a very interesting life. I couldn't have imagined <laughs> that that's now, but, but here I am.
0: Uh, where do you teach in terms of like online school? Are you part of a, can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So I teach for my dad's small business. Uh, My dad has a company called the classical historian and he writes a history curriculum that teaches history through the Socratic discussion. So instead of having a long list of facts for students to memorize, the books have controversial questions like um, was Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor, was he more holy or more barbaric? And uh, students like controversy and debate. And so they debate and I grade them on the basis of the strength of their evidence. So it's, uh, I think is a more interesting way for a lot of them to to learn and it also makes the job of the teacher somewhat easier because I don't have to be an expert on history but I just need to make sure I can grade them so uh, it's I guess it's a family business and the students are really from all over the U.S. um, pretty evenly geographically distributed.
0: Now, do you plan on staying in Prague? Would you, I mean, given that most of your business happens in in the States, do you ever consider coming stateside?
1: That's a very good question. Um, My wife and I really feel at home here. And we particularly like the historic feel of the country and the open culture. You can talk about horribly controversial topics with people here, and remain very close friends. Um, I think the the pop culture plays into it. So everyone's sitting, enjoying beer and pickled cheese together. And it makes it somehow easier to, to talk to people than, uh, for me, I grew up in Southern California and I'm a millennial. And it's uh, often very difficult to broach topics that, at least the topics I'm interested in, right, philosophy, politics, economics, you have to, those are all, you know, part of our third rail now, I think, in the States. So, so we really like it here, but the institutions are much weaker than they are in the U.S. It's a young uh, democracy, and there's a lot of corruption, and the COVID response has been very heavy handed and almost ludicrously uh, corrupt. And so it is making us think that, you know, the, the mature institutions of the U.S., with the federal system mean that even though we seem to be caught up in some sort of ideological crisis at the moment, there is something there that can really weather the storm. And I am, wondering how the rest of the year here will play out and whether these very young free societies can weather this storm.
0: Now, this sort of, in a roundabout way, we've arrived back at demons a little bit. One thing that you mentioned in terms of uh, sort of about yourself was sort of growing up as sort of an unreflective conservative. And I think I identify with that big time where I kind of knew we, I was, I think I was conservative. I don't know. I I, I think unreflective in general may have been more of my case. And then coming alongside of things such as how crazy the world has gotten things, reading something like literature in order to sort of get to things such as politics, economics, and other things like that really, really fascinated me. Can you tell me a little bit about coming around to maybe when you read Dostoevsky's Demon. So you've had a history of sort of, you know, a giant book on economics and very niche. Can you tell me a little bit about like what it is to come to a work of fiction that's sort of around and about the same sort of elements?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question because it's just amazing to read um, very technical academic work and then to read a work of art and find that they are both expressing some profound truth in, in a different way. And I was lucky enough to read Dostoevsky in a class in my undergraduate, and it made a pretty big impression on me, but i never heard of demons. And actually, a friend of my university, Jack, he recommended that I Read demons because he said that it explained how certain ideologies can offer what he called a totalizing explanation of things. Meaning that if you're a communist or if you're a committed libertarian, you have an explanation for everything in your ideology, so that the ideology basically becomes your world and. Uh, he said, you know, demons is basically a book that, that really captures this. And so as these things happen, I was coincidentally at a bookstore and saw a used book and, oh, it's demons. So, so I picked it up and it really was an experience to read.
0: A little bit about the book. Now are the, it's, this is, uh, somebody just passing by maybe at the store could see Demons by Fyodor Dostoevsky and think, is this like a tract on the supernatural? How how would you answer that
1: question? So it's very much a story of a society in crisis and about individuals who are trying to make their way through that crisis. And almost all of them are trying to defend some form of humanistic values. So there are ordinary people who are possessed by ideas and the demons for Dostoevsky are the ideologies that can turn those noble intentions that all these people have trying to make sense of their time and trying to you know, protect the poor and, and the weak or achieve justice uh, the, the demons are the ideologies that take those noble desires and aspirations and pervert them, and and turn that same yearning uh, into an engine of oppression.
0: Yeah, I think it's in Brothers Karamazov. But a line that comes to mind was um, that uh, one of the brothers loved humanity, but not so much the individuals. Oh, but sort of that drive for humanity. It was also, as I kind of, the prep that I did for the interview, I found when the particular translation of Dost- of Dostoevsky's Demons came out, which is the Richard Pevyar one, which you quote in the article, so I assume that's, that's the one you read. LA Times did an article about it and said that it was a book about, you know, particular ideology, or it was a book about uh, warning about ideologies and any I- ideologies at that which I think could be true, but also Dostoevsky had in mind a very particular ideology that he portrayed in the novel. Do you, Is that how you see it as well?
1: Yeah. I When I read it, I didn't think it was necessarily any ideology that he was worried about. He definitely is taking aim at nihilism and the effect that nihilism has. And you're You're right, I'm reading Pevier's uh, translation, and his foreword to the book is just in- incredible. So that definitely influenced my my understanding of it. And he is, I think, cautious of any sort of intense commitment to ideas that might be in some way, taking the place of some sort of religious faith. So that sort of zealotry is something that Dostoevsky is very careful about and worried about, but he seems to have a very clear idea that the most dangerous ideology of his time is nihilism. So maybe it would help to mention some of the others that he's contending with yeah, please. And one of the, the funny things about the book is he talks about the the radicals and the, the anarchists, the nihilists who want to tear everything down, deny that there's any or wrong, and basically see themselves as the the, the remakers of society that are they're going to build up a utopia from the ashes. Um, he writes about them being the sons of the liberals. So the setting is Russia, and uh, Russia that has just freed the serfs. So it's something that I think is beyond me, and my historical understanding, and, and perhaps beyond the imagination of anyone from the West to have this society in, in which the aristocrats are very connected to the West they're speaking french they're vacationing in switzerland and they still measure their wealth in the number of souls that they command so the number of serfs that they have under their control on the land and that existing side by side at the same time that in the west you have you know railroads being built and the end of slavery it's it's hard to understand, I think. And the liberals in Russia are kind of aspiring to be like the West and aspiring to be like Britain. And they're denouncing the old order. They're rebuking the traditions, the, the feudalism, the privilege of the aristocracy. And they think that they're upholding truth and justice and human rights. And in a very perhaps ironic way, their pursuit of human rights and the rejection of tradition, it seems just to pave the way for their sons, the nihilists, to reject every concept of truth, every tradition, and embrace uh, and glorify violence for its own sake. Um, So there's this interplay between liberalism and nihilism in the novel And perhaps to do it more justice, I should mention that the the ideas are of course embodied in these very complex characters that are presented in the most, in the funniest way. It's something that I don't have a gift for, uh, for just conjuring up the humor with which Dostoevsky writes, but every single character with all of their desires with all of their aspirations is characterized for us in the most, uh, just with the most biting irony by Dostoevsky. And so the liberal is ridiculed. The nihilist is ridiculed. The lover of Russia, the Slavophile is ridiculed. And you have all of these different ideologies uh, motivating people, possessing people, and by the end, you see they're they're really haunting people.
0: Right now, it was uh, there's a one big thing I feel like in all of Dostoevsky's later novels is is what you mentioned in terms of him sort of fighting against this turn to the West, uh, against sort of uh, as you just mentioned, one of the ideologies that he that he ridicules is the Slavophile in the novel. Dostoevsky probably would identify with the Slavophile to some degree while also appreciating some of the West. But one question in terms of, it seemed like a particular moment in the West as well as what they were turning to. And it's a, it looked like a lot closer to the nihilism you were describing. How would you describe the West at that particular moment when you say that those uh, were trying to bring in more ideals from the West? What, what were some of those?
1: Well, I think that the fact that the Russian aristocrats were speaking French might kind of point to the the French Enlightenment and French rationalism right. as the, the Western influence that was popular there. So you did have uh, some of them, you know, adoring England, but I think most of all, it was this emphasis on abstract reason and the world that abstract reason could create. So instead of having, you know, differences between classes, differences between the sexes, differences in wealth, instead of having all of these things that are part of Russian tradition, many of which are horribly oppressive at that time, what these liberals wanted was a rational order, an order in which the only distinctions that are recognized are those that can be fully articulated and defended in, you know, a philosopher's debate. And I think, you know, that demand in itself, you can see that the seeds of a total destruction of society are planted in them because it essentially puts the, the brilliant or genius individual who, you know, has his internal dialogue and his reasons for everything. It puts that above uh, the traditions and culture that have emerged over centuries and, so if, if one person and, and their own mind is going to be trusted more than the, the, the millions, um, then it's very easy to think, oh, well, why should we, you know, if we, we can't trust society, but also why can't uh, we say that we can't trust the individual? There's no one to trust. Let's burn it all down.
0: right. Right. I really appreciated you have a nod in, in here in terms of when ideologies go to war, there's a doubling effect that happens. And you say in the, in the article, like boxers in a ring, his rebels mirror their tyrants, ducking and weaving as they fight over the same prize. Each double is convinced of the uniqueness of his cause, yet differences fade under a flurry of symmetrical blows. Both sides remain blind to this similarity as their struggle intensifies. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect? Do you see that happening today as well?
1: Absolutely. So that whole image and the idea, I think, is embedded in Dostoevsky's writing, but it comes uh, from the work of René Girard, and he is quoted by Pevier in, in the foreword. He's a very influential and, and, for me, uh, still difficult to understand uh, social thinker and who, who talks a lot about the, the structure of human conflict, and it is just the case that when people oppose one another, they often act more and more like each other. Uh, so that's something that uh, Gerard calls the the monstrous double. And so you're saying,
0: rather than surmising we're so different and therefore we fight a lot, it's actually the opposite. Is 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 Gerard's
1: case? Absolutely. So I guess to very briefly sum up his idea, uh, Gerard thinks that we humans are at bottom um, imitators. We we learn everything by copying others. And that also means that we learn what to want, what is worth wanting uh, from others. So we desire fancy cars because we see other people desire fancy cars. We learn how to talk because we desire to be like our parents. And uh, the thoughts bouncing around in our head Even those ideologies bouncing around in our head that we're so convinced by, they're borrowed from from others. And so the more similar we are to one another, the more we share in our thoughts and desires. So suddenly uh, there comes a situation where we share desires with another person and now we desire the same thing. We, you know, in classical literature, you have the desire over Helen of Troy causing the Trojan War. And in demons, you have ideological radicals who desire power. And I think in our own time, we have this huge polarization of society. People think they're so uh, unique and so isolated on these opposing camps And they're both actually fighting over the exact same thing. So their conflict results from their similarity. And I think we see this with the increasing disregard for uh, for peace and, and for law and order, where we have had over the last several years, these whispers and sometimes shouts of, radical groups who are marching through the streets, armed, and uh, who are spreading propaganda online. And some of them are on the right and some of them are on the left and they claim to oppose one another. And of course, if they happen to be in the same place, like in Portland, for example, then what the Proud Boys and Antifa go at it. But uh, fundamentally they're, they're doing the same thing they're They're both using the same means to achieve the same end. and so this uh, this very strange uh, quirk of human nature means that when we as individuals uh, pose tyranny, we are at the greatest danger of becoming tyrants ourselves, right and the, the character Shigalyev, he, you know, in one sentence puts it all together. He says, he tries to build a perfect world from some, you know, philosophical starting points. He says, my conclusion directly contradicts the original idea I start from, starting from unlimited freedom. I conclude with unlimited despotism. And so, you know, the nihilists and anarchists who are trying to, tear everything down, their leading philosopher is going to become just like the Tsar. And of course, this actually happened, which is the other crazy thing about demons is that 40 or 50 years later, you had Lenin tear down the old system and institute one of the bloodiest regimes in history. So there seems to be something really deep about human nature that Dostoevsky understood and created this dramatic conflict to express.
0: Yeah, it's it's really, there's something there where, you know, someone may hear our conversation and think, okay, well, there's just like two really smart guys who are very into niche, seems like literature that, that describes, you know, kind of like highfalutin this and that. But what I think, even as you were just talking there, like reminding us that like what I think makes Dostoevsky really great is he had a particular, a finger on human conflict. And it's one that, as you kind of unpacked that Rene Girard also helped illustrate and, and showed us that Dostoevsky got this about human nature. And there's a sense in which I feel like this is happening right now, where people are watching the news and wondering... Weren't we all just there talking about freedom and other things like that? And now it feels like we're careening into that sort of despotism. How did we get here? What happened? And, and I think Dostoevsky and, and other people, such as Rene Girard as well, are really, really good at like popping the hood on human conflict, on societal conflict, and and showing basically the plumbing of how we got here. Do you believe that's the case as well?
1: Absolutely, and. It really shakes my confidence in, you know, the limits of my own awareness. If uh, you have so many people who, you know, think they have found the right system, they act on it heroically, courageously, and yet they bring about terror, It's uh, kind of throws into question... You know, what what are we doing when we think about ideology? What are we doing when we act on ideology? Can we actually rely on our, our thoughts to guide us towards the truth? Or are we bound to this, you know, fatal quirk of human nature, where no matter what ideology we have, no matter what our atten- intentions are, you know, we could be thinking anything and we might be acting in the same way. So yeah, Dostoevsky, all of his books feel like a journey into the subconscious because uh, you see that these patterns that emerge over and over again, they they must have something to them that, you know, isn't, it's and it, they they have something to them, and it's not just what's going on in in our heads, but it, there's something there's something else to it.
0: There's a big part of Dostoevsky, and in, in this is, I assume that the imaginative conservative came up with your title, or or, or possibly you did, but I feel like here at Canon Press, we're a publisher, we have we're very invested in the classics, etc., and. and the traditional marketing of a classic book will be like, you know, this is just as the title says, it's a book for our times. It's a classic for a reason, et cetera, et cetera. But there really is something to the frenetic nature and the doubling that seems to be happening as, as I I assume there's probably a large middle ground of watching these two polarizations sort of go at one another. You caution us at the end of your article, you say, it would be a mistake to conclude that dostoevsky has a solution to all of the issues and increasingly divided west but you go on to say yet as his furious dialogues reveal the true shape of the spirit of the times it becomes that much easier to cast it out so part of it seems with your article part of the war is understanding even what's happening what is going on and then we can begin to sort it sort it out cast it out how do you think does Dostoevsky in your reading show us any ways in which we can combat certain ideologies without becoming a double, without getting drawn into a frenetic, uh, and sort of mimetic war. Is there a way to be healthily differentiated and, and, and fight?
1: That is the question of questions. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that I've found a clear answer to that question in demons um, yeah. I, do, I do remember though, in the, the brothers yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. there's this line, I think it might be Alyosha who says it might be someone else right who he's talking about this endless search for freedom, and the search for freedom is characteristic of modernity because it, us modern people we we really want autonomy we want to be in charge of things um you know i will be in control i will only do the things that make sense to me that can be rationally explained to me That can be defended if it doesn't make sense to me then it doesn't matter how many other people have done it or how long it's been around uh, i'm gonna you know cast it out and i want to have you know this unrestrained. Uh, scope for realizing my own potential. This is, you know, deeply ingrained modern idea. It's it's me that's in charge of my life and I should be free to do as I please with it. And so this character is talking about freedom and he comes across, uh, you know, he, he talks about these prisoners who were political prisoners, and within two days of being in jail, they were happy to trade in their comrades in exchange for some cigarettes because of their (laughs) nicotine addiction. And then he goes on to say that um, true freedom is not doing whatever you want, but true freedom is found in escaping Desire escaping the the snares of desire and in the monastic life, so it's this great Christian statement really in in that character, and it is I think a great mystery to me, you know whether there's there's a way to to fight for something like like justice or equality without, without entering into that web of, of desire, um, whether there's a way to fight for these things and yet not be attached to them.
0: Yes. I think, yes. And, 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 and not in a, um, you know, and you can correct me if I'm misreading you too, but to clarify for folks, I I don't, not necessarily in, in, in a sort of Hindu, unattach yourself from things that way as far as like material any kind of material is that is that is that correct you you mean in terms of a sort of hyper mimetic you know that person has it i want it that that sort of thing is that what you're talking about
1: yeah so I, i i don't i don't mean exactly like you renounce a connection to the world i I think Dostoevsky has to be understood within Christianity. So yep, the that's good. You know, it's to be to be um, in the world but not of the world. Right. That's the the Christian a- approach to yep. non attachment. And I I think for Dostoevsky having a grounding in religion is one way to not yes. address. Yeah. Uh, address ideology with all of the hopes and expectations yep. of of religion.
0: Right, that's really good. Now, ha- have you yeah. read The Idiot by chance?
1: You know, I haven't.
0: Okay, but you have you read you read you mentioned Bros. K several times. I uh, so one of my favorite things is sort of getting a handle on authors and really getting familiar with their catalog and you know seeing trajectories and what have you. But I think in terms... I think you're absolutely right that there, Demons doesn't seem to actively propose something. And I, The Idiot, I think, he he talked about failing in ways that he wanted to present someone who could navigate the webs, and it really ended up failing. Um, and he acknowledged that it failed. And I think uh, Alyosha, for him, in Brothers Karamazov, is sort of that person who... And, and even as you are saying, I, I actually think in Bros. K... Alyosha wants the life where he can go the monastic route and he ends up getting like continually pushed back out to do what I think, I think Peviar's translation calls it active love in terms of being able to navigate the webs of desires among his father and his brothers, etc. cetera, but navigate them successfully. Whereas in the idiot, uh, he totally fails. That's,
1: that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I actually read this book at a very interesting time because myself i i'd grown up religious and then left religion and when I found uh this whole very interesting uh, you know world of th- philosophical and economical you know approaches to to social problems i I think I kind of transferred some of some of my religious fervor onto it. And for a while I thought, you know, if only people could be more liberal in the classical sense, if only we could, you know, find the right institutions, um, then, uh, you know, the world would be such a better place. And it even led me in, in my own life to put, you know, to strain relationships with friends because I was always talking about politics or <laughs> to, to, to message my friends who lives in Portland, Oregon to try and, you know, con- convince her that, you know, all the things she was posting were wrong. And, you know, how how helpful is that to have a friend who just sure. does that at home? And so th- this book really helped me to because it it didn't offer it didn't point the way out but it was the best diagnosis of my own situation that i come across and it it definitely paved paved the way for a return to religion for myself so it's it, even though it is not uh at all a comedy <laughs> um it's uh, it still has this power to, to reach us, I think particularly in a time when everything is confusing. I, I mean, I, I don't know how it is for you, Jake, but for me, this has been the most bizarre five or six years um, <laughs> I could have imagined. Right. And so Dostoevsky really you know because he doesn't just talk about ideology but because he he goes deeper he has something for us right now
0: yep absolutely absolutely and you know i highly encourage anyone i get the uh, there's sort of a russian intimidation with with the size of novels but dostoevsky is such an edifying read and someone who as adam says in at the end of at the end of his article is someone who can sort of pop the hood on the spirit of the times to be able to sort of sort out what is happening here. What is the nature of what is our human nature and, and why does it tend, um, towards these sort of totalitizing ways. So Adam, I thank you so much, man, for coming on. Is there anywhere if you said you had, a, you told me before you have a sub stack, we can point folks to, to where you are writing.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It's really been great. Uh, and You've inspired me to read more Dostoevsky. It
0: like, <laughs> yeah, you read everything I am. Uh, yes i th- I have not read Poor Folk, so no. Mm. But uh, but yeah i I got like very quickly. Uh, what's a more edifying way to say intoxicated? I, I really loved Dostoevsky, and he's such a character. And I, like I said earlier, I, I'm fascinated with sort of watching an author work through a catalog Mm. and and even just seeing, you know, his short story stuff before he went into, uh, Siberia, into Siberia, essentially, uh, for five, six years. And then watching his work from out of there sort of go towards more of a, of a conservative or, or cautionary direction was, is, is super fascinating to me. And, and I think Gerard also helped me see a ton of that stuff. So like I said, I hope, you know, if you if you continue to read, please, you have my email. So, can, you know, let me know anything or I'll be watching for your writing. If there's anything, you know, that's standing out, I'm, I'll be fascinated to watch it.
1: Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. To answer the question about where people can find me, I have a substack, I think just Adam Degree, the name of the newsletter is Liberation or Liberty, and then I teach at the Classical Historian. And yeah, thank you for for inviting me on. It was really, really fun. Of
0: course. All right, man. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers.